Amen. All right, Bobby, you going to get this one? Thank you for your honesty. Let's just get it going. Uh, it started out just like any other Good Friday, right? The kids were getting home from school. The adults, uh, adults were going home from work. And, and everybody was looking forward to a night of rest and worshipful reflection. But little did they know that uh, they'd get some rest all right. Some of them would rest forever. One minute, get this, people were riding home in their cars. The next minute, the cars were literally bouncing in the air. And then all of a sudden, the streets became asphalt waves, and parts of the city dropped as much as, boom, 30 feet, causing buildings to smash anyone who walked in their path. But even those who made it home, they didn't fare much better. Their lawns suddenly broke up into huge, tilted chunks, leaving people grasping and groping and hanging on uh, to anything, lest they should fall into the bowels of the earth. But that was just the beginning. The shaking was so severe, it caused a massive tsunami 200 feet high rushing towards the coastline. It traveled at 415 miles an hour, and it annihilated everything in its path. First the boats, then the ships, and then even the tankers, which, listen, caused them to spill their oil, which then caught on fire. And so now a watery wave of fire barreled down upon the people, causing them to be drowned or utterly burned alive. It was the largest kind ever recorded in North America. The year was 1964, and the disaster, of course, was the Great Alaskan Earthquake. Wow, how many guys have heard of that disaster before? Yeah, most of us. That wasn't that long ago, okay? And I think we could all agree, but that's a, that's a pretty serious disaster, okay? But again, you guys know the theme. With all due respect to those who lost their lives in the great Alaskan earthquake, what if I were to tell you I know of a disaster that makes that earthquake look like a mild headache, okay? And what if I were to tell you that this disaster didn't occur at just one place at one country at one time, but it's going on right now today and has been for 2,000 years all across the planet? Folks, once again, we are talking about the satanic war on the Christian. And again, the facts are this. We Christians, we don't battle here and there once in a while. Are you kidding me? We go to war every single day. Whether we feel it, see it, believe it or not, the moment we got saved, we entered into a spiritual war against a real-life demonic host whose sole purpose is to destroy you and to extinguish your effectiveness for Jesus Christ, okay? And so in order for you and I as Christians to stop getting duped and beat up all over the place, unnecessarily so... Because it doesn't have to be that way through Christ. Okay, we're going to continue our study, the satanic war on the Christian. Now, speaking and using the biblical terms, war, battle, soldier, we've seen all that. If you're going to win a war, what's the first common sense thing you need to do? We saw you need to know who your enemy is. We already dealt with that. The second thing, what your enemy is like. The third thing, the tactic of your enemy. The fourth thing, the destruction of your enemy. And the last six times, who's counting yeah, we are, Bobby, that's right. Uh, this last six times, we saw the fourth thing, uh, the fifth thing, was the temptation of your enemy, right? He's out there every single day, folks, trying to get us to sin against God and destroy us, okay? And last time we saw the fourth temptation he fires at you and I is the temptation of the terrified Christian. Oh, how many guys were terrified when you pulled up to Sunrise parking lot this morning and you saw, I'm not making this up, a dead chicken in the middle of the road? Did you see it? That sounds like a country music song, doesn't it? Dead chicken in the middle. That was a skunk, by the way. That's right. And I think a Jim, Jim, you took care of it, right? You didn't? Did you wash your hands? All right, I got to get going. We're way off on a rabbit trail. But terrified Christian, that'll terrify you. But it's even worse than that. What we saw was the devil, he will actually trick us into not, listen, utilizing the practical biblical tools to experience God's victory when spiritual warfare, when temptation comes your way. We always, he gets you to, to do all these man-made techniques, right? Why? Because he knows that nothing can penetrate the armor of God, right? And if you do what God says to do in the day of evil, you will stand and stand firm. You'll experience Christ's victory. But oh no, apparently that's too simple, 
right? And he gets us to resort to these man-made techniques that do not work. And we're terrified, right? Now, what we saw, if we're going to experience victory, then God calls us to do a couple things. We begin to break down those practical tools. And the first thing is we need to develop a good offense. That's what we saw last time, to use the football terminology, a good offense. And how do you develop a good offense? How do you enjoy that victory? Well, you do what God says to do. In the day of evil, with spiritual warfare, with temptation, you need to stay sharp. Pay attention to what's going on around you, okay? Don't lollygag around. You need to, if it comes your way, what do you do? You flirt with it. You look at it. You stare at it. No, you stay away. Run, flee, get out of there, right? We saw. And then, of course, hello, you need to spring clean once in a while, right? Sometimes we compromise and you allow things, mm-mm, spring clean, okay? Now, that's just developing the good offense. That's only half the story, okay? If you guys know football, you not need only a good what? Offense, you need a what? A good defense, and that's what we're going to see. The second way you uh, experience victory over the enemy's temptation is you develop a good defense. Oh, I'm sorry, you didn't have a good defense. That's why you lost. Let's go to the people. Uh, <laughs> hey, you, hey, it's a timely issue. You've got to share it. Uh, so let's go to those who had a good defense because we want to uh, have them as a role model. Uh, but <laughs> So how do you do that? Well, the first thing, biblically, is you need to speak up in prayer. Soldier of Christ. That's our theme, folks. We're soldiers for Christ. You need to speak up in prayer if you're going to have that uh, good defense. But again, as always, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God's. Matthew 26, that's our opening text here. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. And uh, we're going to be reading the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. Some serious spiritual warfare going on here. As we know, Jesus getting ready to go to the cross, right? And uh, things heated up, so to speak, okay? Matthew 26, if you find Matthew, what do you do? Yeah, that's right, Bobby, he's late for services. Get in here and then go to the book of Matthew 26. Ryan, you're on the ball. What a guy. Look at that. Look at you guys. Are you guys getting married soon or something? You look all happy and stuff. Yeah, I give it a couple years, but no, I'm just kidding you. It's great. <laughs> Anyway, Matthew 26, let's take a look at the garden, the Gethsemane account, right? Verse 36, let's stand as we read the holy word of God. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called what? Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and what? What's the key word? Pray, right? So when Jesus was experiencing some serious spiritual warfare, what did he do? He prayed. Now, pay attention to that word. How many times it's mentioned in just this one passage, right? I think it's there for emphasis. So he goes and he said, pray. Well, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Well, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground, and he what? He prayed, says it a second time. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he, Jesus, returns to his disciples, and he found them what? They weren't praying. They were sleeping, right? He said, come on, could you men not watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray a third time so that you will what? You will not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the body is weak. So now he goes away a second time, and he what? Fourth time he says, and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Well, when he came back and he found the apostles, they had this prayer revival going on. They called people from the surrounding communities. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong translation. He what? Again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away and once more, what? Prayed the fifth time mentioned here and the third time there and saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still 
sleeping and resting. Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You may be seated there. But again, I brought that out for emphasis because I think that's one of the things in this text. Right? We talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, and rightly so. We talk about Jesus and passages, talk about it. so intense what was going on here, the spiritual warfare, and what he's about ready to do, and to go to the cross, praise God, to shed his blood for the forgiveness of all of our sins, and he's literally sweating droplets of blood, and we'll talk about all that stuff. And, and, but what's he doing? In the midst of this, what is Jesus doing? In his, when he faced his greatest temptation, the greatest hour, what did he do? Not once, not twice, but three times. What did he do? He prayed about it. He simply went and prayed about it. Why? Because Jesus knew firsthand the way you overcome temptation is not by grunting about it. It's not by groaning about it. You go to God and seek his power to make it through it. Right? And how many times, I mean, you think, you think that would be our knee-jerk reaction as Christians. Oh, no, something's tempted me to sin against God. I'm going to God. No, we don't. What do we do? Open. Why don't just go to God? I got a theory that goes like this. I'm kind of thinking that if anybody doesn't want us to sin, it's God. <laughs> so do you think if you go to prayer to him, like Jesus, you'll have the power to say no? Yeah, but what's the enemy do? Anything else but that. Anything else but that. The enemy knows it, folks. It's the power of God is sufficient, listen, to handle anything the devil throws away. Right? Just go to him. Pray. Receive. Whoa. And the devil knows this, folks. Right? He knows this, so here's what he does. He knows that we have the very power of God available at our fingertips. He knows that we are God's children. He knows he cannot break that line of communication. That we have the privilege to pray to God, to communicate to him anytime, anywhere, any place, 24-7. It's awesome. He can take that away. But what he'll do, he'll take that which is good for us, i.e. prayer. He'll twist it. And he'll turn it into something, something icky. Ugh. Like this guy. Watch this. I don't know. At my church, the pastor always makes, me, makes us hold hands across the congregation. I can't stand that. I'm ADD because I can't think about the prayer. I'm just thinking about the person I'm holding hands with the whole time. Man, this dude's hands are I think he's got an extra finger. What is that? Man, is that a mole or a milk dud? What is going on over here? Dude. I don't know if I'm sweating or he is. You ever pray holding hands? You say amen, do that little squeeze. Squeeze. Amen. Squeeze. You know what that means? Let go. Squeeze. Well, folks, you know I love you, and uh, because of that, guess what we're going to do when I finish this sermon? Yeah, we're going to hold hands, baby. Hey, hey, hey! Might get a little milk dud, a little, you know, gummy worm, or I hope it's a gummy worm, I don't know who. But no, seriously, folks, this is what happens, okay, in all seriousness, okay, what's going on? This is exactly what the enemy does. He takes that which is good for us to do, namely prayer, and he turns it into something icky to do. I, I don't want to do that. That's, I don't know how to, how many times people say, they always say this, we've dealt with this before, uh, I don't know how to pray. Okay. Prayer is simply talking to God, and you're actually talking to me, asking about how I don't know how to talk. It's, that's all it is. But see, the enemy will turn it around. It's just expressing your heart to God. You don't have to rehearse everything you say. 
unless you get in trouble. But we won't go there. No, so, <laughs> no, you don't have to rehearse it. It's just spontaneous. That's what it all, that's all it is. You just express your heart to God. God, help me. Right, Peter, when he's, you know, sinking away, what was this? Oh, I'm sorry, God. I have to go through this four-step formula before I can let you know how much I'm drowning. Lord, save me. That's it. Right? It's the same thing. But the enemy will take it and turn it into something convoluted or turn it into something religious or the only kind of prayer you can pray is, Oh, Lord, die. Thee, thy, thou, 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 thou. Right? And you sound like you're working for Shakespeare or something, right? So, no, you don't talk that way normally. So what? He gets it all, that which is good for us, that which is always meant to be spontaneous, always from the heart, and certainly in your time of need, when temptation, when spiritual warfare comes your way, and it gets all messed up. Or turns into something icky like with that or something, okay? And, he's, and why? Because he's not dumb, folks. He knows that if we don't spend any time in prayer, we're not going to have the power to ward off his temptations, okay? But again, what is our usual response? We don't pray when temptation comes our way. What do we do? We fight. We grunt. We groan. We, we grit our teeth. We hope desperately, oh, please, oh, if I could just hold out long enough, ah, instead of just, just go to God. It's, 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 just go to God. Again, if anybody doesn't want you to sin, don't you think it's God, okay? But the question is, are we even asking him to do so? Are, is that our knee-jerk reaction when temptation comes our way, okay? And do you really think it's by chance? You don't think this is a spiritual warfare issue that for some goofball reason, every time we are tempted, every time we experience spiritual warfare, we do anything else but pray? Do you think that's by chance? I don't know, maybe this has happened to you. I mean, uh, do you think it's by chance that uh, just like the disciples, we consider sleep more important than supplication? Do you think it's by chance that prayer has become, listen, a spare tire in the trunk, if you will, instead of our first resort? Do you really think it's by chance that historically prayer meetings are the least attended service of the week? Folks, that's spiritual warfare. Because the enemy knows exactly what he's doing. He's tricking us into not receiving the power of God to ward off his attacks. In fact, one of the greatest uh, uh, prayer warriors, in fact, he was even called the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he said that he considered prayer, do you pray individually and corporately as a church? That's your spiritual thermometer. How mature is your church? You find out in their prayers. It says like this, Charles Spurgeon, he's considered to be the greatest preacher England ever produced. And again, he's commonly known as the Prince of Preachers. 63 volumes of his published sermons still bear witness to the success and the richness of his ministry unto the Lord. And though known as a great preacher, it was not the preaching that made Spurgeon great. Listen, Spurgeon repeatedly acknowledged his success as the direct result of his congregation's faithful prayers. It has often been remarked that the whole church helped produce Spurgeon. And when visitors would come to Spurgeon's church, he would take them, listen, down to the basement prayer room where people were always on their knees interceding. And he would declare, that's the powerhouse of this church. Spurgeon, in his autobiography, described his gratefulness for being blessed with such a praying church. He said, I will always give all the glory to God, but I do not forget that he gave me the privilege of ministering from the first to a praying people. In fact, people heard him pray, listen, with such reality that they became ashamed of their own repetitious type of prayers. Dwight Moody, if you're familiar with him, he goes over to visit Spurgeon, right, in England. And upon his return, they asked him, hey, did you hear Spurgeon preach? And he replied, yeah, but better still, I heard him pray. 
And a close friend of Spurgeon commented on his personal prayer life. He said his public prayers were an inspiration, but his prayers with the family were to me more wonderful still. Mr. Spurgeon, when bowed before God in family prayer, appeared a grander man even than when he was holding thousands spellbound by his sermons. And again, he, he realized that, listen, the, the church's greatest need was not to have more prince of preachers, but to have more princes of prayer. Why? Because in Spurgeon's eyes, the prayer meeting was the most important meeting of the week. And it closes and said this, we love our meetings for preaching. We love our meetings for praising the music and all that stuff. And yet, sadly, we neglect the time needed for prayer. And again, that's why Spurgeon said the prayer meeting is the spiritual thermometer of the church, individually and corporately. What's he saying? In other words, that's how you find out how mature you really are. How much are you experiencing the power of God? How much do we know that you're going to be experiencing victory over spiritual warfare, victory over temptation? Why? Because you're demonstrating that maturity by constantly going to God, certainly in your time of need, just like we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I got a theory that goes like this. If you're sick and tired of getting beat up by temptation, then listen to Jesus. Don't go to sleep at the wheel like the disciples when you're being tempted. Go to God. Don't go down in defeat. Speak up in prayer. Why? Because unless you do, it shows your defense is down. You're going to lose the battle and you're going to get body slammed every single time. So you need to develop that speaking up in prayer. Your knee-jerk reaction, Christian, our reaction said, oh, go to God. 50 times a day, 50 times a day, I go to God. I go to God. I go to God. Radical different story. That's one of the ways. The second way you develop a good defense, at the same time you're doing that, you need to soak up some scripture. Soldier, right? Soak up some scripture. Why? Because guess what? That helps you not sin too. I didn't say that. God did, right? It's a wonderful two-bang punch. Man, when you are always in prayer to God and you're soaking up his word, you got a, you got a great walk with Jesus going on. Psalm 119, 10 through 11 says, I seek you, God, with what? With some of my heart. When my calendar gets around to it, you know, when it's really convenient. Well, I got to wait for after the Super Bowl. You know, that's why we're released back. And I, ooh, wow. No, no, what's he say? All my heart. I seek you, God, with all my heart, right? Don't let me stray from your commands. Well, I'm seeking you, God. I'm praying to you. We just saw that point. And, and, and I don't want to stray from your commands. I don't want to give into these temptations. Well, what do I do there? It's a two-bang punch. I have what? I have hidden your word in my heart that I'm what? That I might win that daily double. At Jeopardy. That's right. I'm going down to Southern California. I'm going to get on that show, Pastor Tom. I'm going to show them that when I hit that daily double, I'm going to get the, at least the Bible column right. I don't know about the other columns, right? Those are pretty rough, right? But hey, no, what, what, why do I hide God's word in my heart? Not for some intellectual treatise. Not so I can get the right answer and improve my Sunday school class. No, not at all. What's the Bible say? Paul says knowledge puffs up. Love, the application of that knowledge builds up right he says i have hidden your word in my heart why because i don't want to sin against you god that i might not sin against you one of the great benefits that you and i receive from the word of god constantly got our nose to the grindstone in the scripture it doesn't just keep us on the straight and narrow it doesn't just tell us what's right and wrong what's it do it keeps us from sinning against god right because i don't know when you got saved and when i got saved all of a sudden i didn't have this 45-step do's and don'ts thing fall from the sky and say, don't do this and don't do that. Now, we do have that for us. It's called the Bible, right? 
But I don't know about you, that first night, I didn't think about trying this, Ken, maybe it worked for you. But uh, maybe I should have just put this underneath my pillow and slept on it, and then it would just leach into my brain, and I would never have to read it again because it's like a computer program. I just zip it over, and it didn't happen that way. Day by day after you get saved, what do you do? You renew your mind, Paul says, Romans chapter 12. Why? Because the word of God, it starts to get into. Now, here's my whole point in saying that. Therefore, it's a growth process, right? And so did you ever experience, like maybe after the first week of getting saved, you're getting into the Bible, and all of a sudden you're, oh. You got convicted? Because the word of God exposed that what you were doing was wrong. And then you kept reading it the next day and the next day, and then, oh. And then you kept, and you go, oh, well, praise God for the blood of Jesus, that's all. But you keep reading what? It's going to convict you. Why? Because the more you read it, it tells you what? These are the things that God would have you to do. These are the things God would have you not do, right? And again, all of his commands are for our good. You know, people say, well, I'm just, uh, so you guys are just a bunch of religious people and have a bunch of do's and don'ts. No, name one command that God puts in his word that's for our harm. Not one. The only reason why there's uh, commands for and against in the scripture is because the entrance of sin. And God puts up the parameters like a loving Heavenly Father to protect us. I put a fence up in my yard so my kids don't run out in the street and get killed. Is that, I'm being me? Oh, you're being, you're just hindering my right for freedom. No! I'm protecting you. And that's what God's commands do. But again, we don't know them automatically when we get saved. So the more you read it, the more you hide it in your heart, what's it do? It keeps you from sinning against God. Okay, but guess who also knows that? Satan, absolutely. The enemy knows it, folks, right? He knows, listen, either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Ooh, I'll say that again for those on the back row. Uh, not you personally, that's just a euphemism. Uh, either the Bible will keep you from sin, right? Or sin will keep you from the Bible. And this is what the enemy does. It's the exact same thing with Prayer, right? Prayer, we can do it anytime, anyway. It's not something religious. It's not perfunctory. It's not practices from the heart to your heart to God. He can't take that away, so he turns it into something. Uh, he gets this thing something negative or twisted or icky or whatever. Same thing. Listen, he's tried over the centuries throughout church history to get rid of this book, the Bible. He can't do it. Ain't happening. So you know what he does? He gets us to have the average American household, even non-Christians, have at least at least one copy of the Bible. Sometimes up to three and that includes even homes of atheists there's bibles everywhere see what he does he just gets us not to read it and and typically it's not because it's icky ugh, like with prayer here's the word boring oh are you serious i can't even pronounce mephibosheth i don't even know how to say that the old and he gets us to have that mindset that somehow studying the Bible is boring. Are you kidding me? It's one of the most exciting books ever written. It is the most exciting book ever written. Right? And it's not just a man-made book. It is inspired by God. Okay? But again, this is what the enemy does. And do you think it's not by chance? Tell me this is not spiritual warfare, just like with prayer. Do you really think it's by chance at the moment? Listen, you finally get around to cracking open the word of God. All of a sudden, your eyelids start to close. Have you noticed that? that? There's no way that's by chance. I mean, you're, you're as alert as all day. It's like you just had 18 cups of coffee. Ah, I'm going to read the Bible. You really don't think that's by chance? I mean, we laugh about it because it's like a universal thing. That's spiritual warfare. Somebody doesn't want you in there. 
Do you really think it's by chance the moment you start even thinking about, man, I really need to study the Bible, that all of a sudden, bang, here comes a bunch of thoughts in your head. Hey, here's some more fun things to do than that. Do you think that's by chance? No, that's spiritual warfare. Let me give you one more. Do you think it's by chance that the thought never crosses your mind that the reason why your walk with Christ is so bumpy lately is because you haven't even studied the Bible lately? And you're just not putting the two together. It's really that simple. It's a deliberate attack from the evil one. It's spiritual warfare, right? He's tricking us into not reading the word of God to hide it in our heart so that we would more easily sin against God. But folks, the word of God, we'll get into this later in our uh, uh, armor of God study coming up here in a few weeks, Lord willing. Okay, that the word of God is what we use to get at the enemy when he comes our way. But if you never heighten your heart, what do you got to defend yourself with? Right? And this is what we see also in the example of Jesus. When Jesus was tempted back before the Garden of Gethsemane and experiencing that spiritual warfare there, when he was tempted by the devil, what was his knee-jerk response right matthew 4 chapter 8 through 11 next the devil took him jesus to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and here's what he said i'll give it all to you he said if you will kneel down and worship me get out of here satan jesus told him for the what the scriptures say you must worship the lord your god and serve only him then the devil what he went away and the angels came and took care of him right now, for a lot of us, we'd say, oh, get out of here, Satan, because, because there was that sermon one time that Pastor Billy gave, and I heard this guy in church services, he brought this passage that, it's in the Bible, get out of here. Not quite as effective. The power isn't in me preaching a sermon, or you heard some other Christian, the power is in the word of God. But if you ain't hiding in your heart, what do you got to defend yourself with? For the scriptures say, and Jesus quotes it. For the scriptures say, and Jesus quotes it. And what happened? The devil went away. But if you don't know the Bible, you're not in the Bible, it's not even in your brain, what, you're left defenseless. That is, it's right there before us. Jesus didn't grit. He didn't groan. He didn't moan. He didn't squirm. He didn't, oh, I hope this doesn't get it. He immediately went and quoted the word of God. And the devil took off. It's the same thing for you and I. Okay? In fact, let me give you some benefits. These are all true stories. Mind-blowing. What happens when you really make it a life of where you study the Word of God? It keeps sin away. It really does. And again, what sin? Is that good for us? No. All sin hurts, harms, destroys. You want to have the best possible life this side of heaven? It won't be perfect because heaven comes later. Then you follow and do what God says to do because he loves us. But watch, listen to this. A Roman Catholic priest in Belgium rebuked a young woman and her brother for reading what he called that bad book. And he pointed at the Bible. And so she said this to the Catholic priest. She said, excuse me, Mr. Priest, a little while ago, my brother was an idler. He was a gambler, a drunkard. He made so much noise in the house that nobody could stay in it. But since he began to read the Bible, he works with industry. He goes no longer to the tavern. No longer does he touch his cards. He brings home money to his poor old mother. And our life at home is quiet and delightful. How come is it then, Mr. Priest, that such a so-called bad book produces such good fruits? The word of God steers you away and keeps you from sin. Another one, listen to this. The General Secretary of the Bible Society in Zimbabwe tried to give a New Testament to a very belligerent, non-Christian guy, just a pagan guy. 
right? He kept, I'm, I'll just, hey, just take the word of God. Just take this, just the New Testament. Just take it, right? The man said, okay, yeah, I will. But if you give that to me, I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm going to roll up the pages of the New Testament and I'm going to use them to make cigarettes. So the secretary, listen, he said this. He said, oh, okay, I get that. He said, but at least make me a promise. Promise to read the page of the New Testament before you smoke it. So I kid you not, the pagan guy, the non-Christian, he agreed, and the two went their separate ways. Fifteen years later, true story, the two men meet at a convention in Zimbabwe, and this, quote, scripture-smoking pagan is now saved, and he's a full-time evangelist. Listen, he told the audience, listen, he says, listen, I smoke Matthew, I smoke Mark, and I smoke Luke. But when I got to John 3, 16, I couldn't smoke no more. My life was changed from that moment on. Right? The word of God, the enemy doesn't want you to have that. God wants to bless us. He gives us his commands for our good, but no, 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 stay away from that. Right? And one guy says this, he says, listen, we may talk about power, but if you neglect the one book that God has given you as the one instrument through which he imparts and exercises his power, you will not have it. Oh, you might read many books, you might go to many conventions, but unless you keep in constant and close association with that book, the one book, the Bible, you will not have power. And if you ever got that power and had that power, you will maintain it only by the daily, earnest, intense study of that book. But the problem is, he says, 99% of Christians are playing at Bible study, therefore 99% of Christians are mere weaklings when they could be giants, both in their Christian life and service. The enemy knows exactly what he's doing. Keep you away from prayer. Keep you away from Bible study. And he's going to have a heyday with you. So again, I got a theory. I think it's pretty simple, but it's effective, I think. It goes like this. If you're sick and tired of being slammed with temptation, then don't sin against God. Soak up the word of God. Don't succumb to the enemy. Speak forth the scripture when he comes your way. Why? Because unless you do, it shows your defense is down. You're going to lose the battle, and you're going to get bombarded every single time. The third way that you develop a good defense is now you need to stay steadfast. Keep marching, Christian. No matter what happens, don't go AWOL, don't give up. You keep marching. Amen? Right? And this is what we see. Folks, you get this one down, you're going to leave this sanctuary a new Christian. We've talked about this before. Christian, it's going to happen. You're going to march. You're going to make a misstep. You're going to fall down. You're going to stumble. The rifle's going to fall off. What do you do? <laughs> no. And this is what we see here, 1 John 1, 8 through 9. If we claim to be without sin, we what? We deceive yourselves. Christian, we're going to blow it. Right? Turn to somebody and say, man, you're going to blow it. Right? And if you're a husband and wife, you might even venture and say this. You really blew it this morning. That's what, no, 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 no. We don't want to create a ruckus here. Okay? <laughs> it's going to happen. Not condoning it, but it's going to happen. So what do you do? Right? God hates you. He's going to hit you on the head with a two by four. It's it. It's over. You might as well stop. Go backwards. No. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. But if you do blow it, what do you do? If you just confess your sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We've seen this several times before, but folks, I'm telling you, this is what the Bible says, that when we blow it, because guess what? We are, what's the Bible say? When you first get saved, we're what? We're a full-grown adult. We pop out, spiritually born again, a mighty warrior. For, it doesn't work that way. I wish it would. It doesn't. We're babies in Christ, Right? And so guess what? As babies, when you feed them, guess what? They make messes and stinkies and, 
and you've got to clean up after them and keep feeding them. But, but eventually, in a healthy scenario, they eventually start to learn to walk. But even when they're walking, they stumble and fall down. And, but you're there to help them to grow. And, but, and so idealistically, it's like a plant. You're feeding water. It keeps growing, and right? And, and, just keeps, and eventually, they, then they can walk on their own. And still, they're still... That's our spiritual walk with Christ. Right? And everybody grows at different rates. As you can tell, I'm still growing. No. My growth got stunted, but that's another topic. <laughs> But we keep growing, right? And so guess what? We don't always do it perfect. We fall down. We skin our knees. And I'm not talking just physically, spiritually. We fall down, Christian, don't we? I'm not condoning it, but it's just a process of growth. Now, hopefully over time, we'll never be sinless without sin. Positionally, it's already done. We've talked about that before. But I'm talking in practice. But hopefully over time, we'll sin less as we grow stronger in Christ. It's a process of maturity. But in that process, what's going to happen? We're going to fall down. We're, we're going to scrape our knees. We're not perfect, right? And, and, and so what's God say? He says, listen, don't, don't shrink back from God. Don't run from God. Don't hide from God. Just confess that sin, and here's the great news. What's God going to do? He will forgive you. Not maybe, not might. He said, I'm not going to, oh, that's it, man. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you squirm for two weeks. Oh, he doesn't do that. We do that to each other, which is sin in and of itself. But God doesn't do that to you and I. And not just that, he says he won't just forgive us, he will cleanse us. In fact, in the Greek it says he will continually cleanse us. It just doesn't stop. I mean, as fast as we commit them, boom, 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 they're gone. If you would just confess that sin, it's going to happen. And folks, this is the great news of the gospel. God will forgive us and cleanse us every last sin, even the sins we don't even know about. That's what we need to be steadfast in the faith. But here's the problem. The enemy knows that. He knows that we're going to still blow it. And he's right there to laugh in your face. Ha, 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 ha. You call yourself a Christian? God can't love you. You ever hear that voice, Christian, go through your head? And what he does is he tricks us into thinking that somehow I shouldn't run to God. That, that, oh, he, he won't forgive me for that one. And he gets us into what the scripture says is not true. But he gets us to think that we're condemned. But what's the scripture say? Romans chapter 8. There is no longer, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Did you know what the Greek literally says? Ab, I'm not making this, absolutely no way. It's utterly impossible. Don't even think it. Don't even let it enter into your brain. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because it's all dealt with, it's all gone. And again, tell me this is not exactly what the enemy's done. When, uh, here, this is the good news. You're going to blow it, you're going you're to drop, you're going to scrape your knees. Then what do you do? You run to God. You, you run to God, you confess it, boom, he's going to forgive us. Woo, and you keep moving forward, soldier. But the enemy, this is, you tell me this is not by chance. When we blow it, and we're going to blow it, Christian, and, and you want to run from God, then I'll wait. All of a sudden, the thought goes through your head, no, maybe I should, maybe I should run away from God. I, I'm not going to Bible study tonight. I just feel like a slime ball. I, I'm not going to go. I can't. No, no, I, I just need to step down from that ministry. I just can't. You ever hear that? Do you think it's by chance that after you made an absolute, sometimes Christians, we get really messed up. And you long from your heart to hear the words, I love you, my child. And instead, you hear that voice in your head that says, God hates you. You're not his child. 
Folks, that's the evil one. Because when you're God's child, you're his child forever. And it's all complete. It's all secure. Did you know that God loves you, Christian, just as much today, even after all these years, as he did the first day when you cried out to him in salvation? His love doesn't wane. It doesn't go up and down like we do for each other. It's consistent. It's complete. It's awesome. But the enemy wants you to be alienated from God. Why? Because he knows, listen, if you don't think that God loves you, you won't draw near him. And if you don't draw near to God, especially in your time of need to confess when you stumble, your walk with him will suffer. Christians, we're going to fall. We're going to fail. We're going to sin once in a while. I'm not condoning it. But again, it's a process of maturity. It's a process of growing up into that Christian adult, that Christian warrior as we learn how to fight. The Bible says if you confess that sin, God guarantees by faith that he will cleanse you from sin, all sin, all unrighteousness. And so if you're sick and tired of being slaughtered by temptation, then guess what? If you've blown it, then just confess it and start moving forward again. Don't run away from your heavenly father. Run to him like this boy did with his father. Watch this. What you're about to see now was a surprise for a little boy whose dad has been in Iraq. The scene is a small town in northwest Washington state. U.S. Navy Ensign Bill Hawes, who spent the past seven months deployed to Iraq, decided to surprise his six-year-old son hey, John at school. John didn't know it till he laid eyes on his dad. <laughs> It took young John a long time to stop crying, but when he did, he mustered the courage to introduce his dad to his classmates, who had all written him letters while he was deployed. It's tough to take, but welcome home. We're back with more right after this. How many times, Christian, as a child of God, our Heavenly Father, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ultimate warrior, Jesus, steps into the room. He won. He's given us the victory. He whooped the devil on the cross. And yet as that little kid, we want to run to him. We just want to run to him and just hug him. And then the enemy is right there. Even though Jesus is right there, so to speak. And he tells us, don't do it. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want to give you a hug. Look at you, you dirty mess. You're not even his child. You have no right. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The scripture says, listen, 
If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You run to the Father every single time. And every single time, he will pick you up and hug you and love you every single time. And he'll put you back down. Get marching. That's our Heavenly Father. That's what Christ has done for us. And it leads us to the fourth one. You need to get back up. You need to get back up. Right? You deal with the sin thing. If you do blow it, you get back up. Right? And this is what I really think the enemy wants to really mess with us, man. Because I've seen him throw Christians for not just years now. It's been decades. And they're still stuck on the battlefield. Sitting down. It's all an illusion. Right? But we need to get back up. And this is why I love this from Paul. Right? He says, hey, you're going to have some trials as a Christian. Hello, you're going to have some hard times. But listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. Yeah, we're hard pressed on all sides, but we are never frustrated, Christian. Yeah, we're puzzled, but we are never in despair. We're persecuted, but we're never deserted. Oh, we may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. Rocky, eat your heart out. Right what I'm saying? This is the Christian man. You just keep getting off the mat. All because of what Christ has done for us, right? We just keep getting back up. We're going to get knocked down, but through the blood of Jesus Christ, we get right back up again every single time, right? It's all done. It's all complete. You blow it, you get back up. You blow it, you get back up. You blow it, you get back up. Why? Because of me? Absolutely not. But because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because what he did on the cross, you confess it, enjoy that moment, you get right back up and you start marching Christian. This is what we got to do every single time. And I really think this is one of Satan's greatest ploys because he knows we're going to blow it, right? And if he can't get us to not go to God and confess that sin, or we confess that sin, but even after confessing that sin, we don't take this final step and we don't get up. He actually, listen Christian, he tricks us into sitting down on the battlefield of life. And that's it. And we'll, and we'll say stuff like this. Oh, yeah, I know God loves me. I, oh, I know he's forgiven me of that sin. But uh, I don't feel like I should ever serve again. I don't think I should ever get involved. I, hey, listen, after what I've done, I got no right to witness to people. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The devil knows this, folks. He knows it so good. What good is a soldier if you sit down on the battlefield? And again, soldier. We haven't got to the armor of God yet. We're not just a soldier for Christ. We are a soldier who is armed to the teeth for the Christ. But you could be a soldier in the midst of a battle. You're armed to the teeth. The enemy is actually freaked out and scared of you. But what good are you if you sit down and do nothing? I have seen Christians after they've blown it and hello, it's going to happen. Still to this day are sitting down. Because they've bought the lie that God can't use me anymore. But what's Paul say? Listen. Oh, you might be knocked down. But you're not knocked down. The Bible says, listen, that a righteous man may fall seven times, but he gets up every single time. Right? Just like Rocky. Every single time. Oh, here he comes again. Oh, here he comes again. Oh, he ain't getting up this time. Oh, yeah. In the power of Jesus Christ, you can't. But you don't understand, Pastor Billy, the sins I've committed. I, I just, listen, if God can use an adulterer, a liar, a murderer for his purposes, don't you think he could use you and I? 
then get up, Christian, by the grace of God, and start fighting again. But Pastor Billy, the sin I was involved in, it left this trail of devastation, destruction, and destroyed so many lives. Get up and start fighting again. Christian, don't give in, don't give out, don't give up. You need to get up, stand up, and keep fighting. And listen, when the enemy comes in with his lies, you tell him through the blood of Jesus Christ just who you are. And the Bible says that when you become a Christian, you ain't the old Jew anymore. Uh Uh-uh. You are a brand new creature in Christ. And this is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. When we're saved, we're not that old person who loved to sin, who longed to sin. That's not how Christ sees us anymore. When we become saved, we become a new creation, a child of God. We become a mighty warrior for him. This is what the enemy does not want us to know. Because if we fully realize the fullness of salvation and what Christ has done for us, listen, every time we're back up and we're swinging again, we become a threat. He doesn't want us to realize who we are. Not in us, the new us, in Christ. The mighty warrior, the child of God, right? One guy puts it this way, Christian, how many times do we forget our identity? He said, listen, as a child of God, I am what? all quoting scripture. I am accepted by Christ. I'm an ambassador of Christ. I'm alive with Christ and all things work together for good. As a child of God, I'm a believer. I'm blameless. I'm blessed in the heavenly realms and the evil one cannot touch me. I'm brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm born again. I'm beloved and I belong to God. I cannot be separated. I'm called to be a saint. He's been chosen before the creation of the world. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm complete in Christ. I'm completed by God and I cannot be condemned. I'm his disciple. I'm dearly loved. I'm delivered. I have direct access to the throne of grace. I'm dead to sin. I'm healed from sin. I'm free from sin. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm a friend of Jesus. I've been forgiven by Jesus. I'm established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. I'm free from my past. I'm kept by God's power. I'm prayed for by Christ and I'm not going to hell. I'm a new creation. I'm not alone. I'm not helpless and I'm not in want. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm one with him in spirit. I'm part of his kingdom. I'm a partaker of his divine nature and I have peace with God. I'm protected by God, empowered by God. I'm redeemed by God and I'm a personal witness for Jesus Christ and I've got the victory over death, hell, and the grave. Therefore, I am secure. Why? Because I am a child of God. When the devil comes knocking at your door, let Jesus answer it. And say, listen, I'm a child of his. He whooped you. And slam the door. And get back up, Christian. And start fighting again. Know who you are, Christian. You are a child of God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the master of the universe. We are not the old us, the new one. And we serve a great and awesome king. May that be our rally cry. We'll close in prayer after this. I am not an innocent bystander. bystander. I am a threat threat to my enemy. enemy. I am powerful and cunning. I am strategic 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 and bold. I will not sit idly by. I will take ground. I will advance. I will will tear through through my enemy. And my enemy will hate me. I will not avoid the difficult fight. 
I will fight! I will be wounded! I will be targeted and I will bleed! I will not tire! My wounds will be healed! I will see tragedy! I will feel pain! But I will be restored! My feet will not stumble! My hands will hold fast! I will not be intimidated! No need to be a terrified Christian, Christian, when we understand what Christ has done for us. We're a triumphant Christian. Why? Because we serve a great king. I will not be intimidated anymore. Amen? Well, hi, this is Bill Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven? and not hell. Now before you answer that, let me uh, share with you a couple things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are not. And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. We don't deserve to go to heaven when we die. We deserve to go down. We deserve to go to hell. Now to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this problem that we have, that we're separated from God not only now, but we're going to be separated from Him for all eternity in a place called hell. We, we, we don't even want to admit that. So. Once again, out of love, God gives us what's called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's x-ray, if you will, divine x-ray to, to get us to admit the problem that we have inside that's separating us from Him. Let, let, let's take a look at a few of those of God's divine x-ray. For instance, if you think that you're worthy on your own, you don't need a Savior, uh, you're going to get to heaven all by yourself, then let's take a look at God's test there, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. The ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. Uh, how many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you just told one. But folks, we've all done that. That makes us a liar. The Ten Commandments, God's x-ray, showing us that we have sin that's separating us from Him. We're not holy and perfect like Him. The Fifth Commandment says this, You shall not steal. Don't ever once take anything without permission. How many of you have ever done that? Well, if we're not going to tell another lie, we, we should all admit that as well. Well, that makes us a thief now. The Bible says that God is so holy, uh, even His name is holy. And that's why the Ten Commandments says, You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And if we're honest again, folks, hey, a lot of us, how many of us have used the blessed name of Jesus Christ? The only name, the Bible says, under heaven, that men might be saved. We've now turned it into a common cuss word, if you can believe that. The Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says, hey, show, you want to show God you're so perfect, you have no sin? Then don't ever once commit adultery. And you might say, well, I, I've never done that, really? Jesus lays the standard before us. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. Jesus said, if you ever looked with lust in your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's His holy standard. One more, the Bible says, okay, you think you're so good? Uh, then don't ever once commit murder. You shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I, at least I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible again says that the sin of hatred, wishing someone was... Uh, dead is akin to the sin of murder. 
It's just, if you will, you pull the trigger in your heart. So, so, so how are you doing? That's just five out of ten of God's divine x-ray, by the way, uh, showing us the problem. How are you doing? Not if, but when your time comes, we're all going to stand before God. You will be forced to admit what He already knows. Hey, God, let me in. Let me in. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a, a blasphemer, an adulterer, and a murderer. And the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not headed to heaven in that state. You're headed to hell. But here's the good news. God said if we would just admit this, number one, then he could fix it. And it gets fixed only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be set free. And since we weren't there, and since it's a gift and we can't earn it, we have to receive that wonderful gift by faith. And the Bible says God will pardon us for our crimes, our sins, against Him. And you could actually see this analogy working uh, in the natural, in the normal world. Uh, we see this actually uh, in the courtroom. For instance, if a person is guilty and, and everybody knows they're guilty, they've committed a horrible crime, and, and, and the, the sentence has passed, the judge has knocked down the gavel and says, hey, uh, you are going to jail, you are going to the death penalty for that crime. And, and we know that people, that happens all the time, and they go to jail. But believe it or not, did you know there's a way for that person, even though they're guilty, to actually be set free from that crime? It's called a pardon. And the one in authority, the governor, has the part out of mercy, out of goodness, certainly nothing that that person did in jail. They can't undo the crime. It's too late. But out of mercy, the governor could go down there and grant that person in jail a full pardon for their crimes. And by receiving that pardon, the doors come open and they are set free and they're rescued from the death penalty. Folks, that's what God is doing every single day with us spiritually. He has allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the death penalty in our place. He's pardoned us, but a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it. And it's actually been on historical record that there have been people on death row who a governor has gone down out of mercy and extends to them a full pardon, but they've rejected it. And by their own doing, they went to the death penalty. Folks, don't make that same mistake for all eternity. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done. All of it. Even the sins we don't even know about. He wants to pardon you and forgive you, but you must receive that by faith today. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call upon His name, ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Please do that now. Please do that today because tomorrow may be too late. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. Again, thank you for joining us. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Our information and number and uh, things will uh, pop up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.